Miller. On this week's episode of Tiger Turf Talk, we host Mr. Tim Van Lu of DNK Products. This is an incredible episode with such an incredible person. It was awesome to get to talk to Mr. Van Lu about his career, his path in this journey on turf grass management, and to see how far he's come from his time as a student at Michigan State all the way through his master's degree. Uh, to his time at Iowa State, where he created such an incredible impact on so many incredible individuals and being a mentor for so many industry professionals today, Um, to his time where he really served our industry as a whole on the board of the SFMA and truly just being an overall advocate for what our industry is all about. And it was just incredible to have the opportunity to talk to him about all these incredible things he's done. Tim, I personally can't thank you enough for taking the time to help inspire my kids with your incredible work. And we're really excited for what we can do moving forward. Um, Can't wait to catch up at SFMA next year. Uh, We hope you guys enjoy this episode of Tiger Turf Talk. Good afternoon and welcome to the 79th episode of Tiger Turf Talk. I'm your host, Drew Miller. Today we have on uh, Mr. Tim Van Lu of DNK Products for Sports Fields, Golf Courses, and Lawn Care in the state of Iowa. How are you doing today, sir? Doing very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Uh, we uh, have met on occasion at SFMA conferences, STMA, whatever you guys want to call it, if we're still arriving <laughs> on that. Um, but you have been such a staple in what is sports turf and the the uh, organization and everything that you've done at Iowa State and now. Uh, what has it been like for you sort of being a large part of, again, sort of moving that needle of what sports field management is and the career opportunity that there is for people like me when I first started off not knowing what it was, you know? Man, I wish I agreed with the statement that I moved the needle at all or been heavily involved or any kind of, uh, influence on the industry, oh, but, um, you have. <laughs> man, I've the, you know, I, I first got into turf, um, heck right, right out of high school, um, to work for a golf course and then, um, got into the sports field side. Once I got, I was at Michigan state and had an opportunity to grow in, uh, Michigan state's field, uh, in the summer of 2000, like into 2001. And then, um, what really got me going towards the sports surf industry was having the opportunity to go to the Athens Olympics in 2004 and helping build that Olympic field. And then from then it was just like, I'm, I'm hooked, let's do this. Um, and then being part of the SFMA, which is like you said, I'm still getting used to it, but maybe give it a year or two. Um, that was just a, an opportunity that was just fun, right? Cause you're surrounded by people that enjoy the same things that you do. Um, and it's such a passionate group and I've, uh, you just make such good friends while you're at conference and then, you know, year after year you get to see them. And so it was just, that was just a fun opportunity, honestly. And, um, just so grateful for that opportunity. I didn't hit the mute. Sorry. <laughs> I missed it. Right. Uh, no, for sure. Uh, and getting back this year was really great. You know, being able to be in person was crazy. It's weird that you look back and it's like you skipped two years. You're like, Oh crap. That was three years ago now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. It was in, in 
yeah, as, as much as the online thing and Zooms and stuff have been really fun to kind of, there's nothing like the human contact and being around people and shaking hands and hugging. And yeah, it was, I had a blast this year. It was so much fun. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that, especially, I mean, meeting new people is hard to do online, you know? Um, yeah. but like you said, good things come out of it. I mean, doing this podcast and everything all came from COVID starting in the classroom, you know? So it's been, you always take the good out of the bad, right? You know, I always try to anyways. <laughs> try to, try to, right? Yeah. Make every day count. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so sort of, I, again, I sort of discussed how you used to work for Iowa State and everything. Um, could you sort of discuss what your journey was through the industry and how you got to this point with DNK? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so going way back, I got involved in, well, I would, I knew I wanted to work outside. My dad is a farmer. Uh, we grew up on like a vegetable farm. He, He's worked there. It's not our farm. If it was our farm, I'd probably still be there, honestly. Um, but worked for him for, you know, since I was 14 and could legally do that. And then I played golf in high school and met the golf course superintendent at our home course and realized that, man, you can make a career out of just growing grass. Like this seems like a good gig and thought that's what I was going to do in, in the golf side. And then, like I said earlier, it was just a couple key projects while I was at Michigan State. Um, during my uh, two-year degree, and then I stayed for my four-year degree, and then I actually stayed for a master's degree. So I really just didn't want to leave Michigan State is really what it amounted to. Um, and so that journey kind of just got me involved with the sports turf and then um, graduated Michigan State. And my first job was at Northwestern University, or my first big boy job. Uh, was their agronomist and like events director. So it's kind of a combination job. I was it was heavily unionized in Chicago there. So Evanston is just north of Chicago. So heavy union. So I'm mid twenties, grew up working with my hands. And all of a sudden I'm in a situation where I can't mow, I can't paint, I can't do anything. I basically could adjust the irrigation and set up a plan for the fields. Um, really enjoyed my time there, but wanted to do the work. Um, and so when Iowa State had an opportunity, had a job opening, I was able to interview and Mike Andreessen, uh, one of my mentors, um, and actually he was the president of the STMA at the time, uh, when he hired me, I was like, no, I don't want to follow this legend. Like this guy's, this guy's legit, right? Um, and such so just a calming, peaceful soul. He's just such a great guy. And uh, he hired me to kind of replace himself because he had moved into the facilities. And so in 2010, we moved the family further west and went to Iowa, which I had never driven across the Mississippi to that point in my life. Um, but we did. And it, it's been a, it's been a good spot since it's been a great place to raise a family. So that's awesome. That's kind of my journey. Yeah. It's awesome to hear, especially that it's worked out past that, you know, taking the leap from Iowa state to that, uh, to where you are now, obviously. Sorry. Um, yeah. And D and D and K was who I used for most, all of my supplies when I was at Iowa state. So I got to know the, um, the original owner. I was on a, on a board of directors with him for our Iowa Turfgrass Institute. And, and then, and then his son, who is the D Doug and, um, K is Catherine, his daughter, she does, they both work here. And so Doug has kind of taken over as CEO president. And so we've had a great relationship for years and, um, yeah, and then COVID kind of hit and it kind of threw everybody into a little bit of a spiral and we got to talking and then he made me an offer and here we are. Right. So, 
That's how that kind of works. I love how that goes, right? I love how that goes. <laughs> it wasn't part of my plan, that's for sure. Absolutely. You know, but I mean, time and did sorry, the time of again, sort of the jobs are probably pretty different and everything. Uh being able to have time to take a deep breath on a Saturday, you know, during football season is probably nice. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny that the hard, I, people say, you know, like, do you miss anything? It's like, man, I miss two things, college kids. Um, but like the events, you know, it's, it's college kids, but then I should say, I only miss one thing, college kids, but the hardest thing to adapt to was the fact that since I was 18, I had worked weekends um, during the growing season. Right. And not every weekend, but many of them. Right. And so it was just very odd to be Monday through Friday. That was a big adjustment, probably a big adjustment for my wife. Cause all of a sudden I'm home on Saturday and she's looking at me like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I don't know if she likes me that much, honestly. She's like, I need my space back. Okay. We do. <laughs> no. Right. Like you're no. messing up my system. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That's funny. Um, with that, you know, um, you sort of discussed the the students, you know, uh, and I, I remember reading a few articles back in the day, meaning like two years ago or so. Um, I think you gave a presentation one time actually about mentoring the next generation, you know, and that's yeah. really what we focus on in our program and trying to get kids to understand what the opportunities are. What has it been like for you to see sort of creating that relationship, developing the student, developing the worker in them and sort of seeing that sort of, take on a new generation again of sports field managers? You know, it's, it's, it's a great question. One, um, probably the greatest highlight other than, you know, having my kids and my wife, um, is, is being able to officiate two weddings of past students that worked for me. And so it's like in, you know, so you just create this relationship with these guys and girls. I had a couple of females as well that, you know, the ages, and you probably see it too, maybe in your older kids in class, in the classroom, but like, especially that 18 to 23, and maybe that was because it happened for me. So I just have paid more attention is that you all of a sudden realize that like, okay, you make big choices now that impact your life in a, in a very big way. Right. And so it was really fun to see those guys wrestle through that. Um, or, or those, those people, I should keep saying guys, but I mean, females with two, but they, to see them wrestle through those decisions and how that's going to impact and try to like envision their life five years down the road. And, and just, so that was a super fun journey. And to just kind of like be able to give them little tidbits of wisdom that I maybe had figured out or experienced poorly in my, my day or, or, or what it was just, that was a lot of fun. Um, and then to watch them become professionals. And, and honestly, there was some of them that I was like, these kids are slam dunks. And then you know, they end up leaving the industry after four or five years. And then some of the kids are years less like, I don't know if you're going to have what it takes end up being really good at what they do and are super passionate. And it's, it's almost like something clicked when they left. And so, you know, I, I wish I could say I could even predict which ones are going to be great or which ones weren't. And I had no chance that I was right on some of them. So some of them have surprised me greatly, which has been really fun. That's, that's always good. I appreciate the surprises, you know, I, uh, I have, like you said, you have those kids. You're like, yeah, they're going to do great. I think the, I, I've got a girl. She's at tech right now. She just graduated with her associates going into the four year. Um, she's done a phenomenal job. She interned with the Steelers uh, is on a golf course mm -hmm. this summer. Uh, very skilled, very talented. And I think that's what, 
got her to do it because she was very hesitant going in. Uh, she's like, do you really think I can do this? I was like, well, you're more skilled than 90% of these kids in this classroom, which again, being able to take that and going moving forward, she's going to do great things. So yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really good to see the surprises. The surprises always are like, wow, I didn't expect that, but we'll take it, you know? <laughs> um, For sure. There was, there was something that left you. It's like, I don't know, like you really like to not necessarily be here and, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden when, you know, for, and especially being in Iowa, I don't know where it's like, I encouraged a lot of them on their internship as much as I didn't want them to leave me in the summer because then you had to retrain somebody. But um, for some of them, they needed to get away from Iowa and realize that there's, there's very different ways of doing life um, and experiences that they need to have. And you don't necessarily need to go to a big city or the East Coast or the West Coast, or whatever, but like go somewhere. And, and figure that out. And, and those were the ones that, you know, a lot of times, I think we underestimate the importance of an internship, not just in the job experience, but just the life experience and, and giving somebody confidence to go, I can do this on my own. I can, I can do this. I don't need, I don't need help all, you know, every step of the way I can, I can do this. Um, and so for a lot of them, that was a really big turning point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I forget who. Oh, Daniel Lazito, we had on a couple of weeks ago. He went anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> he was like a, a pinball machine across America with his jobs and his internships. I was like, geez, I can. I went to Pittsburgh and New York, and that's probably as far as I was going to go. So <laughs> it's like, uh, it's always. Yeah, I went to. I went to Milwaukee. That was my big internship. It was four and a half hours, five hours away. You know, it wasn't that big a deal, but it was a yeah. great experience. It got me away and it gave me confidence that I could do it. And so yeah. it's, prob it's probably why I'm the only, yeah, I mean, it's probably why I was so comfortable in leaving and going to Chicago and coming here. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, sort of to dive into your time at Iowa State, you know, um, what would you say was sort of your role and how did you sort of see that? transfer into what you are now with again purchasing the products and everything and being able to use them in your role how has that sort of translated to the sales side of things uh because i think there's a trend in our industry where we start seeing again people like you uh luke yoder all these different guys that are again industry staples they know everything about anything have a great network in the industry um moving into the sales side what has it been like for you to sort of take that time and sort of translate it into what you're doing now? Yeah, it was. Um, so obviously at Iowa state, I had a great experience um, being in Iowa, there's no professional sports. So when you're at the college and university, like, you know, as, as far as a turf job, it was, a, it was, it was well-respected, right. Whether I deserve that or not, I don't know, but it was, it was a well-respected position. Um, I was able to speak a lot. I was able to share my ideas a lot um, and was able to attend, you know, SFMA events, uh, whether they were local or national. And so that gave me a lot of exposure um, to see how other people did it. So I could learn from people that that were way more efficient um, and, and, and better at things than, than I was at the time. Um, so, you know, that job allowed me to be able to make a lot of contacts, and a lot of friends in the industry, which was which was good. And then as far as the sales stuff, I mean, I didn't. I never anticipated that I would be in a position like I am. Um, I, it was, it was kind of an odd maneuver and it took me a couple months to really figure out if that's what I wanted to do. Um, but all of my experiences at Iowa State have definitely helped me um, 
yeah, I think a, a, I don't want to, I don't want to call myself a salesman. I just say I'm here to help. And so if it's, you know, walking a field or walking a golf course or whatever, trying to solve problems. And, you know, I still use the term, I don't know a lot. And, and we have a great sales staff here. Um, I've got great relationships with our trip professor still. And so between a text and a phone call, I can usually figure out a problem, um, which is quite often, I don't know what the answer is because usually they're just oddball things. You're just like, I have no idea what that is, or why what's causing that, but it's fun to figure that out. So um, yeah, I think just a complete understanding of the industry has helped me transition into this. Um, but man, it's been, it's been a fun journey actually so far. I get to at the end of the day, I just, I enjoy helping people solve problems and I feel like that's what I get to do. So it's been, it's been fun. I do love the idea of, again, it's not really a salesperson and the work you do really is like the lifesaver for someone who's in need, you know, when it comes to their fields, um, your time at Iowa state, do you have any really fond memories of working on those fields and really, again, sort of making them their own? I saw they just went through a renovation recently. Um, uh, stuff like that, anything that you want to sort of share with that would be a reflection of your time there? Yeah. So, so I was there from 2010 to, um, you know, basically through December of 21. And so 11 seasons and for, um, you know, basically 10 of those seasons, I was considered the, um, director of turf. And then I kind of had moved that last year. I'd moved solely into facilities. I had back hired my assistant and we have promoted my assistant and a turf manager who was one of my first student workers named Josh Tverdick. Um, very hardworking, talented kid. Um, and even in 2010, he was the kid that like, I couldn't get out of my shop. He just always wanted to be there. Um, was just passionate about it. Just loves the industry. And then we had, so when we moved him up, we had promoted a kid named Michael Young, who was also a student worker of mine. Um, that was, um, you know, between Josh and Michael, they're like, their opposites where they, um, in, I don't know if they'll ever listen to this, maybe they will or not, but it's like, you kind of got Michael, this, this really calming, super like thoughtful guy. And then you kind of got Josh. That's the excitable, anxious guy. And so between the two of them, they're kind of like yin and yang. They'll kind of check each other a little bit, maybe excite the other one or, or calm the other one down. So it actually works really well. I got to see that for a year, year and a half. And now being outside of it, um, and just kind of looking in and stopping in for a lot, another year. But, um, and we had some really fun times there. Um, probably the, you know, we had a couple challenging games of all the years that I, that I did this from 2007 to, to when I left in 2020. Um, we had two fields that I would have said were unsafe. Uh, one was out of our control completely where the field was frozen. Um, we kicked off, we had a snow event on a Thursday night, uh, about four inches in 2013. And all day Friday, the temperatures just continued to drop. So we got the snow off the field. But by game time at seven, I think it was a, it was a night time. It was a night kick. Um, and it was like three degrees at kickoff. And I'll, I'll never forget because it was like the hardest I had ever prepped the field or hardest we'd ever worked. Because all day Friday, we were on it from I actually started plowing snow in the parking lots at like 2 a.m. on that Thursday morning right when the snow stopped so I could have all day on the field. And then we... Worked all day, and then even on that Saturday, all the way up to game time, we were working on the field trying to get stuff ready. And to have the kickers come out first, and have it was like a total like Charlie Brown type thing. Like first kick, the guy like puts the ball up on the stand, goes to kick, and just falls right flat on his back. And 
was just like, this is going to be awful. And we were playing Kansas. Um, we ended up just just crushing them like 31 nothing or something. They, I don't even think they even sniffed on or outside of the field the whole day. But like three degrees at kick, and it was minus three or four, like actual Fahrenheit by the end of it. Field was frozen solid. So it just, in my opinion, it wasn't very playable. Um, but it actually slowed everybody down, so nobody got hurt. <laughs> nobody could move fast enough to get hurt probably. Um and then one other one that I would have said was unsafe. We had a we had a game that was canceled due to lightning, and uh, I think it was 18, 18 or nineteen. I can't remember. It was our first game of the year, and so they rescheduled against Drake. And Drake is right here in Des Moines. It's uh, not a Division One football, but they it was it was one of those that they kind of let us do it. And so it ended up being in December. We don't play games in December. It was the first time Jack Trice had ever had a December game. And Friday was a perfect fall day. Perfect. I mean, it was 50 degrees, calm wind, nothing. But Saturday was predicted to have a ton of rain early in the morning. And then that was going to move into like sleet, snow stuff. And then it was just going to get cold and windy and nasty. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget Coach Campbell wanted to move the game up to Friday. And it was like, you can't just move a football. Like you can't, it's not like a softball game, like where we could just move the schedule and nobody cared. It's like, there's TV, there's all these things that happen. Right. And so couldn't move the game. And we had the field tarp because we at this time we had tarps, had the field tarp. We removed the tarp and just pouring rain. And as we're removing it, it's pouring rain, but it's starting to mix with snow and it ends up putting like three quarters of an inch of like slushy snow on top of what was already soaking wet and it just ended up being a really slick, slimy, nasty field. And the whole time it's just like, this is a disaster. And we barely beat Drake and we were ranked really high at the time. So it was just like, this is going to be a total disaster. Right. Um, squeaked it out. So those were two of like my worst memories. If you like, like just fields where it's like, those ones kept me up all night. Like if I was a heavy drinker, I'm sure I would have been drinking somewhere. Um, but then you, then you have all the successes, right? Like the, the games where, you know, the field shouldn't have played great. We had a game against Iowa, I think it was the same year, like 18 or 19, where we had three rain delays. It rained almost two inches and, you know, so they had three warm-ups and the game went, it was supposed to kick off at like one and we ended up not getting done until like 11 at night kind of thing. This is marathon day and field played fantastic. Um, so you have those kind of memories too, where you're like, this day is awful. It's one of the worst days. But then you look back, it's like, yeah, that was, that was pretty fun. Um, but yeah, probably the worst thing though at Iowa State that happened was my first summer there where we had a flood. Um, I had never really understood what flooding was coming from Michigan. We have these things like called the Great Lakes that take all of our water really freely, right? And so in Iowa, when they mean flash flood, like that's no joke. Like there's, there's some serious water going somewhere and these little streams and stuff turn into big rivers. And the city of Ames has a river that can run through it that has flooded multiple, well, not multiple times. Well, it has flooded multiple times, but usually it doesn't get into where it affects a lot of things. But in 93, it did. Um, and then it did again in 2010 was, I think we were just like an inch or two below the record. So it flooded our basketball arena. There was 20 feet of water in our basketball arena. The, the whole basketball court was set up for volleyball was just floating on all this water. Um, we had lost both of our soccer fields for so our game soccer and practice soccer. And then we lost two of our practice football fields. They were just underwater for a couple of days, you know, six, eight feet of water kind of thing. And so 
that would that happened the beginning of August. So it was like right into the first full week of football and we lose two of our practice fields and we have all in it, you know, it's not only did it rain 14 inches in like three days, um, but it, it was really hot and super muggy. And so you're, you're not only worried about diseases, but then, you know, as soon as the rains go away, still need to water stuff. Cause all, you know, we got sand based fields like the stadium and the practice field two days later, it's, damn near 100 degrees it's drying out and we're not supposed to water because you know the town's all shut down it just was a total disaster so we may or may not have watered a little bit in the stadium where people couldn't see you know nobody can prove it nobody um, has so, any video evidence everything <laughs> right no i mean it's fine you do like all of us you do what you have to do to make it right you know so we weren't just gonna let it go and you know dry up and so there were some interesting times at iowa um, that was probably the most crazy was the, when my first season there where we flooded and yeah, it was, that was nuts. Um, and then from that on, that, that point on, whenever it rained heavy, I just go into the stadium and make sure all of our field pumps were working and you just never slept right. <laughs> it's just, it ruined me. <laughs> oh goodness. I'm just trying, I'm trying to comprehend the volleyball court just floating around, you know? <laughs> oh, it was well, what was frustrating is we spent that whole night because once, you know, there was a lot of people that had gone through a flood in the university. So there was this protocol to do certain things and sandbag certain things. And so we had spent the whole night sandbagging the basketball arena and we left. I remember leaving at like 6 a.m., sending all the kids home and telling Mike, like, hey, I'm going to go home and shower because I've been walking around in all this flood water all night. Um, I'm going to come back. I'll just come back. I'm not. I'm not going to go home and sleep or anything. Cause it was a Tuesday night into a Wednesday morning. Never forget it. And by the time I got back like an hour and a half later, that's when the flooding had occurred and there was water all in Hilton. And so like that two hour period, it just, it just came. Um, and so it was, it was an un water is an unbelievable force it is unbelievable. And if somebody doesn't respect what water can do to something, they, they ought to, because it is unbelievable when it comes. So, that, guy, that gained me the respect at that point. I was like, man, I'm not messing with floodwaters. That's yeah, scary stuff. Yeah, for sure. That and water. Uh, that and wind, sorry. For sure, wind. Yeah, yeah right the, there. The yeah. water, though, like for like for real, like what you're saying, I've seen certain things where somebody drives in and then you just see them start moving, floating away, and it's like... <laughs> what are you doing? It's not, it's not that deep, but like, why are you going in there? Like I said, don't go in there. So, no, I hear you. I hear you for sure on that one. Yeah. Um, so in your time there, obviously you worked with a bunch of different people uh, and you mentioned a little bit about this before uh, with mentors. Who was your mentor when it came to sort of getting started and figuring out moving forward different opportunities and really just who was there when you were sort of making those changes, moving into new positions and sort of, uh, I guess molding what has become Mr. Tim Van Loo. Yeah, so so obviously my big my biggest influencers are my parents, right? And 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 I, you know, the first manager that I ever had was my father. And the farm had all migrant help, right? So they a lot of these guys would come up, families, I should say families would come from uh, most of them come from Texas, some of them come from Florida. They'd come up every summer and they would live in this migrant housing area. And that's who my, my dad managed for the summer too, because it was all vegetables. So it was all hand, um, hand cut, hand boxed. And so it was all manual labor. And so I watched my dad, who was such a, just a 
a gentle manager of people. And so he gained their trust by just respecting them um, and, and trying to influence them in a way where they wanted to do right by him. And it was just, so he was probably my first um, mentor in that way, just in how to treat people the right way and how to, how to motivate, motivate people when, when the situation, I mean, there's nothing worse than marching down a field that might be a quarter mile long on your knees, cutting vegetables, right? Like it's just, that's awful work. But yet these people would work hard for them. They were dedicated. They were loyal. They would come back year after year. And so, you know, I think I, I try to take a lot of what I learned from him and, and managing the people that I managed throughout my career. Um, and a lot of it was just treating people the right way. Right. Um, and, you know, you don't, you don't have to yell and be angry to get your way. That's not how people usually are typically motivated. And so that was, that would be one professionally that I always do look back to. And then, um, and through my first golf course superintendent, Jim's hit, Jim, Jimmy Higgs, he was just a same thing. Fantastic human being this guy. I wanted to be around. He was not only my boss, but a friend. And then once I got into Michigan State, um, Dr. Rogers and Dr. Crum, both of them were super big and big influences on me. And um, yeah, Dr. Rogers, I always tell people a story that um, the, the biggest advantage I had with, with him was that he asked me to help coaches um, his youngest daughter's basketball team. And so I was like, that's a, I mean, I played a lot of basketball. He knew that we played against each other, um, especially when I was in graduate school, but I started helping him coach this team. And so I got to see my professor away from Michigan state and got to know him more as just a, just a person, right. A human being and a father. And so with those long days of, you know, AAU basketball, you start to talk to and you, you travel together. And, and so it was just, you got to see life through his lens a little bit. And, and, um, so he was a big influence on me, um, especially professionally and just how to think through problems and, and not just cause I'm much more of a quick decision maker. Like this is the decision. If it's the wrong one, we'll figure out how to make it right down the road. And he was much more of a methodical thinker. Um, and so he would at least slow me down. A little bit. Um, and then you had Amy Foudy while I was at Michigan state. Um, she was a huge influence on me on how to deal with coaches and players and how to enter and have that interaction to make it very professional, um, how to kind of make them see you as a professional and respect you for what you did for them. Um, you know, she also taught me the attitude of this, this isn't our field, right? This, it's never our field. This is always their field. That's what the field is for is to be played on. And so, to, to have that mindset through my professional career was very important. Um, I was never the guy to just go off crazy at somebody coming down and walking on the field. Um, that's usually when I'd go and start talking to them and, and tell them a little bit about what we do and why we do it. And so it was always just an educational thing. And so I learned that, that from Amy. She was a big influence. She also made me read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And as much as I hated her for it, because I – I was going in, in the summer times, like, I'm not reading, like, this is like my time to just work and play. And like, I don't, I'm not going to sit and read a book with you. Like, that's dumb. And we had arguments with it and, but she made me do it. And I thank her. Thank I've thanked her for it multiple times, but it, it that book I've, I've read it more than once. I've listened to it more than once. Um, and again, it's just kind of that. It's just how to treat people. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's an impactful book. So if, you, if somebody, if anybody's listening and they haven't read it, 
it's a great book. Um, Dale Carnegie wrote it in like the early 1900s and it is so um, useful still today. Um, and so that was a huge impact. And then, you know, Northwestern came and gone and I, I had some really dear friends there, but, and then, you know, lastly, probably mentorship wise was Mike Andreessen at Iowa State. Um, for those of people that don't know Mike, um, one, it's sad that you don't because he's one of the just best humans I know, but he also, he's a, he's a, again, a very different thinker. Like he's going to, he'll sit and stew on a problem and make sure that the decision he makes is the right one. And again, he taught me to at least appreciate that process. Sometimes he would drive me crazy with it because I just would be like, let's go, let's make this decision, let's move on. Um, but he just would think through that stuff and, and it was, and he would always give me a perspective that I hadn't seen. He was really good at finding my blind spots. And it was almost to the point where it was annoying it was just like, dang it, Mike, I didn't think of that yet. Like, why are we thinking about that? This is the problem. He's like, yeah, but this is going to influence this. And, and just how to like maneuver your way within a large corporation, like a university. He was really good at that. He probably was too good because he made me figure out ways to get around policies that we didn't necessarily enjoy. Um, so, so that was good. And, and so Mike was a, a huge mentor for me as well. I think what you're saying about just being a good human being, I think that might be the most underrated thing about pretty much anything in life. You know what I mean? I think as an educator, you know, obviously I have certain things that I have to achieve, what I'm aiming for when it comes to like the curriculum and whatnot. But if I can get a student to walk out of my classroom, a good human being or even a better human being than they were, than they walked in. I've been successful, you know, the, the fact that, especially in our time with COVID, uh, and I see it more because again, younger kids obviously have had that impact and losing a year and not knowing how to react coming out into society again. Um, understanding that if you are just a good person, then things will go right in your life. You know, like it doesn't really get spoken too often if that's the right for it no one's talking about it no one's discussing that hey if you create good relationships things are going to work out your coaches are going to work with you your uh ad is going to want to provide more support different things like that um so i really appreciate you saying that um and i'll definitely have to go check out that book um so yeah and, and to, to just kind of pile onto that a little bit it's you know it's treating people with respect. The thing is, none of this is hard, right? And I just, I, I get, you know, I get to see a lot of different things now on my travels. And, you know, I, I hear people struggle for employees and doing things. And, and, and I, I hope that each one of the people, when they can't find people to work for them, they at least look in the mirror and go, okay, how can I help this situation by the way I act, right? Because I think it's, it's really important to, you got to, because every person's different too. You can't manage all of your people the same way. At least that's what I found, right? Some of them do need a firmer hand. Some of them don't like, and, and there's some battles that, man, they, like, I'll give you, for instance, like, I mean, one of my, it's really funny actually, but like, I, I used to get sick of people being late. I just like, it drove me crazy. And my wife of almost 20 years drives me crazy because she's hardly ever on time for anything. And it's like, this is, what are we doing? 
this causes too much stress and anxiety. But even at work, it would. I finally got sick of having that. that. It's totally fine. You're you're fine. Everything's okay. You can be late. (laughs) The women are always right. I learned that. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, it's fine. But it's one of those where I just created a policy. Like, if you're going to be late, that's fine. But you're bringing donuts. Like, it was that simple. So I'm like, I'm not going to be unhappy if I'm eating a donut. It's that simple. And so that just that just that change in mindset of okay i'm not gonna be angry about this they're gonna bring me donuts it was fine and we had a ton of donuts because i had college kids that like to go out it was just one of those things they did and <laughs> for whatever reason i didn't think 7 30 was that early but for some of them it, it is not real, it was a real struggle what <laughs> struggle oh so, come on that is a great time to go in wow when I was in college, the the hours were usually earlier because it was like game day or something. Like, oh man, how did I get it at seven thirty? I like, I like, I like that policy though. I, if I could implement that in high school, that'd be pretty good, you know. So I said, give me five minutes. Like, just be ten and grab, grab a dozen donuts. Be fine. Yeah, like, for sure, for sure. Whatever. They, so, they yeah, it's just they're it's an fun, hour but... late. They got to bring a steak dinner. Just actually. Here in Iowa, we have this place called Casey's. It's like a, a party. It's a it's a gas station convenience store, but they have great breakfast pizza. So really, honestly, like if you were going to be an hour late, you brought breakfast pizza. Ah. It just hurt a little bit more. <laughs> You're like, where have you been? And they just open the box. Here you go. <laughs> like, all right, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta schedule out my payments and my paycheck. Okay, I, I can't can be late today. This day, I need to work an extra hour to pay that day. <laughs> we did have a couple kids that use it. They buy the donuts the night before. It's like, okay, this isn't oh, working. Oh this isn't right. This isn't working the right way. Like that's not the that's not the point. No, that doesn't. Yeah. Buy, it's not a buying ten minutes. It's a oops, I screwed up. Let me go get donuts so I'm not in trouble. Oh, oh that's great that's great um with that you were talking about michigan state uh that's where you graduated right am i wrong saying that mm-hmm. um yep. with the turf program there uh what was sort of your experience obviously we have kids who are looking to start the next few years maybe this year uh what is it about michigan state i mean i've heard nothing but good things and I'm all the way down in Virginia. So what was your experience like and how have you sort of taken your education and implemented it in your current role and maybe even before in different places you've worked? Yeah. So, so Michigan state was a lot like Iowa state. Actually, that was one of the biggest draws for coming here was I had missed being a part of the turf program. Um, in Chicago, it was just odd. Like it was, you, you kind of felt like you're on an Island a little bit. There wasn't, there was an STMA that I was part of. There was, or an SFMA that I was part of. And then there was the, the bigger, um, turf, um, thing that what do we call it? The I, it was the Illinois turf, whatever it was part of that one as well, but it still felt like you were kind of alone. There wasn't a lot of support. Um, when I was at Michigan, it was, so I grew up in Michigan and so Michigan state was a, a natural fit. Um, but it was, so the experiences I had there were, were really, invaluable as a professional for sure, because I was able to do enough research projects for Dr. Rogers and Dr. Crum in the sports side where I always tell people like, I was never scared to kill grass um, because we killed it all the time. We, we always had a kind of a joke. If you weren't, if you weren't killing the grass, you weren't doing real research, especially in sports because a lot of it had to do with traffic. So we, 
we had come up with that, the, or Jason Henderson, Dr. Henderson, when I was there, had came up with uh, the KD, that traffic simulator with the basically an air fire and cleats and rubber. I don't know if you've ever seen one, but um, it just would just decimate after about eight, 10 weeks of quote unquote play. And so we did a lot of that research and then you just bring the stuff back. So I never had a fear of killing grass ever professionally. Like that was never a fear of mine. It's like, you know, worst case we got ryegrass, we can bring back. Um, so that was a huge advantage just to see things go to the brink of death and then watch it come back. So that was a huge, just confidence builder, just in seeing that time and time again, it's like, okay, if you're not afraid to kill the grass, then you're not afraid to try something new. Right. And so that was really beneficial to me just in my thought process and how I would think through, um, different, different situations or problem solving situations. Um, and so really like you, you brought up the project for Iowa state, we just renovated, we grew our own sod. Well, I had experienced growing our field in and at Michigan state. So that was not a new idea to me. And so when we had developed that idea, we were going to do it in 2020, but then not know what was going to happen with football. We pulled the plug on that, you know, just shy of a million dollar combination project between our practice field and, and, and the stadium. So that project was an idea of mine that, that I had approached with um, Dr. Tomes and I kind of thought through the process and then I brought it to our administrator and, um, Fortunately, I had a really good one who also enjoyed um, kind of taking a chance on some things. So it really came down to, well, we can buy the sod. With the timetable we had, we couldn't seed it, or at least I didn't think we could. Everything would have had to be perfect, right? I really wanted to seed it. That was my first idea. But then I was like, ah, this isn't something. If, if all of a sudden we can't seed it till the middle of May or end of May, like I don't really want a ryegrass field permanently. Bluegrass just seems to work really well in Iowa. It just does. Not anything against people who can grow ryegrass i just can't grow it well here in iowa at least for play it would look good but then as soon as the players would get on it it would just come up so bluegrass would stay down for us um and i don't know if it was just the it was just odd um i could grow ryegrass just fine in chicago but here it was just, just i couldn't get it to play right and so bluegrass was just a, the preferred surface and so it was like well do we ship the sod from colorado which they have beautiful sod do you ship it from somewhere else you know it, there's options there but it was expensive and it's like, well, can we just at our Hort farm, we had a good relationship with our research farm and, and Dr. Tomes. And it was like, can we just grow our own sand-based sod? Like for six acres of sod, we could bring in three inches of sand, just do a little top coating, harvest an inch, inch and a half of that sand-based sod. Now we've grown our own and it's right here. It's eight miles north. It's going to be acclimated. We've grown it. We've been able to do all the inputs. Like, why can't we grow our own sod? And so that was kind of the idea. And so that's what we ended up doing. Of course, I had made the decision to leave. And then we were able to just, you know, figure out the money and have the money to do it. And so they did the project after I left. But it was, it worked out fine. I was able to help with it, um, help Josh create the growing program and, and really actually learn about new new products that I was, wasn't even aware of that, that were available to kind of help accelerate that stuff. So it was it was a great project. It was fun. I still got to be a part of it. Um, and so, so yeah, those, those experiences at Michigan state allowed me to be able to think outside the box a little bit and, and really just have a, a fearless approach to, to growing grass. Cause it's like, what's the worst that can happen? We kill it. We can grow it back. So that's fine. So there's really no fear in it. Right. At that point. I love, I love that because <laughs> the, there are so many turf managers out there that don't, 
think even remotely close to that. You know, it's like, uh, oh, I got a little spot. I got to fix it. Like being able to say, hey, we're going to be fine is something that it takes a while and it takes a lot of failures and it takes a lot of like mm-hmm. understanding that, hey, we can bounce back, but we got to work, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I love how you you bring up the research aspect and being able to do stuff like that, because I feel like there, there is a lot of growth in that when it comes to people and what they're doing in their roles, uh, whether it's golf or sports field, uh, taking the time, figuring out what works for them, trying new things. Uh, I th- again, I bring this one up all the time, talking to Travis Hogan, having a fine fescue, a little overseed like with that. Like No one thinks about that. No one's like, right. like oh, wait, what are you what doing? What do you mean you put fine fest? He was like, well, the shade issues. I'm like, it's brilliant, but no one ever thought about it, you know? Um, So things like that, that I think being able to test, understand, see what's going on. And like you said, it's, it's honestly, it's where you work and how you are able to, again, sort of continuously manage that field. Uh, Blue Muta, a lot of the Midwest states, they love it. It does great. Here in the transition zone, we have a practice field. It does pretty well for its role, but the Bermuda chokes it out. Like it's you right. got to reseed every year. Like so, why are we spending more money if we can just do ryegrass? You know, like that's right. those are the types of things that I really love about turf management and being able to see and compare and discuss. You know, uh, Blue Mute is a great concept if you want to try and save some money. You want to reduce chemical use and stuff like that. But at the same time. Bluegrass is its own animal and it needs a certain climate. And especially in the transition zone, it's a, uh, <laughs> a little bit of a struggle when it comes to any cool season, you know? And, 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 you know, like the transition zone is different for everybody, right? Like you guys just, you get hotter and humid. I mean, don't get me wrong. Kansas City and St. Louis can be miserable in the summer, hundred percent. but I think you guys are miserable longer, right? Or it's just maybe a little bit more humid or what? I mean, it's, and again, like, even like I said, I was in Chicago, like we had mostly ryegrass on that field. Cause I had fought some POA there. And when we killed all the POA, I seeded 10 pounds per thousand of ryegrass. So I'm like, I, I don't, I want to beat the POA out of the ground. Right. And so that field was, it had a ton of ryegrass. Mm-hmm. I could grow it there. Fine. We could get it to root. It wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't say it was never my best field, but it was super good and consistent. We had, I remember how one game where it, it rained three inches during the game day. Like, and we, you know, had, had a tarp, but it rained the entire game. Iowa city had a, had a game that day. And so did Michigan state. And actually that was the game that, that kind of got Iowa to change into artificial because they had had a drainage issue that they didn't address. And so it backed up. And so the field just, it was a bathtub, essentially our field played fine. And, and so that was a ryegrass field for the most part. So I just couldn't do it here. And so whether it was just that we had bigger, bright, shiny days, I couldn't, I could never figure it out because Michigan, it was, you know, Lansing is one of the cloudiest cities in the country. Most people don't realize that, but it just is. So here in Iowa, like we have bluebird skies and wind and our temperature changes are far more extreme than Michigan. So it's like, it's just different. Even though you look at it, it's like, Oh, you're right similar. there. Same thing, right? <laughs> but it's different. It's just, Absolutely. it just is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's what works for me might not work for the guy, even 40 miles North of here. It's just, it's so you, like you said, to have the courage to try something a little bit different for your particular spot is a huge advantage because you'll learn what doesn't work and what does. Absolutely. And so it's, yeah. I encourage anybody to try something new. 
hundred uh, percent. And it, like you said, like 40 minutes away is completely different than where you're at. And even, I think it was Weston Appelfeller. He was talking about the microclimates on his field, just because mm-hmm. of the way the stadium lies, you know, like things like that people aren't really thinking about, you know? Right. Uh, so I, again, it's incredible to, again, see people doing that and have the concept. And then again, just having the, the overall sort of, uh, I don't know what the right word is. The, I don't want to say balls, but the balls to go and do something, you know, courage to try it. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the, that's like you brought, I mean, cool. Travis is a great example. Travis is a great example. And it's, it's one of the, it's a reason he's well-respected in our industry, right. It's because, um, he's willing to try something new. Alan Johnson was the same way when he, when he figured out Grassmaster that that system, when he first got it, like he would tell you, like he had no idea what to do with it. And he figured it out. And after four or five, I don't know how many years it figured, you know, he got the recipe figured out that field has been the same playability for, I don't know how many years now it just is. It's so consistent, but he's got the recipe, but he was willing to try different things to get there talk to people overseas, try to figure that out. And so, you know, you look at some of the guys that have done really good things and especially at the, at the the elite level, it's, they were willing to try something new. Um, And so it's fun to watch those guys do that. And then we get to learn from it. We were lucky (laughs) enough to talk to Alan. Uh, He didn't want it to be like broadcast or anything. So it was just for the kids, but what he did up there, I mean, talking to him and having the schedule that he knows what he can do any certain time and like, it's insane what they have to deal with up there. And I absolutely love him because being able to do all that while dealing with the whole, again, artificial turf monster, when it comes to like, why wouldn't he be artificial turf? He's in green Bay. Like of all of the NFL teams that has the right to say, yeah, we're going to go with an artificial turf field. It's green Bay, you know, like, and he, and it outperforms a lot of the fields in the NFL most of the time, you know, um, which is unbelievable to be able to do in that climate. So, again, huge props to Alan and everything that he does. And I can't thank him enough for taking the time that one time. It was a while ago now. See, it's- yeah, he and, and he is Alan Johnson is one of the most, he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met, honestly. So fun to be around. I got to serve on the national board with him. And I've been to play, I tell people, so I just got to go to Augusta this year for the first time. Oh, how was that? Walked walk Augusta. The pra- we went Wednesday on the practice round this year and we, walk, and we walked the whole thing. And so I tell people like, well, I go, how was it? I said, I'm going to compare it to this. I've been on Green Bay's 50-yard line underneath the growth lights twice. And walking Augusta was very similar to that. It was the only place I've ever been where I was allowed to be but didn't feel like I should be. Like it just <laughs> didn't feel right. Like, like this yeah. is just like hallowed ground. Like I don't, I don't feel right about being on here, but this is really cool. And so, yeah, Green Bay is just a special place. And if I don't know if people really realize how awful the climatic conditions can be out there. Yeah, uh, we were there. Was I forget what he what what time it was. It was a playoff game, and he discussed how he has that whole rig set up with like he blows it up, make sure it's blown up, freezes over certain things. Like he had let the air out and it froze on the ground. I don't know if he told you the story or not, but oh yeah, <laughs> the the fact that like that can happen and it's like two days before a game and he still has to paint the field for the playoff mm-hmm. game, like 
I'm just sitting here like, holy crap. Is that the one where he had to put the old cover back on it yes, to like yes, heat it up yes, enough? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yep. Right. And, and, and given like, and, you know, people, people can chalk it up. Well, he's got unbelievable resources. So it's like, yeah, but he's got to have the wherewithal to like have an extra tarp that he kept his old one to be like, I might need it. I don't know. And, and then figure out like, okay, how can I do this? Hey, why don't we grab this tarp from off the shelf, blow that up, keep things up again. I mean, he's, he's, yeah, he's an outside the box thinker for sure. And And again, you're talking about him going overseas and whatnot. No one would ever think about that. Like having the lights, having the understanding, like what they're doing over there. And again, nothing against us here in the U S because we have a bunch of great uh, Mm -hmm. industry professionals. We do a pretty good job for what we're doing. They, for some reason, have it figured out. Uh, I don't know if you know John Ludwig and those guys. uh, Just talking to them and the overall understanding of what the expectation is, how they handle the situation. Like, it's insane to me that we are not even sort of close to that. You know, having the understanding that the owners understand that the grass is as important as the players, you know. Where where do we get to that point? How do we get to that point? You know, well, it's let's you know, now I'm going to get philosophical on you and Love maybe that. get butchered okay. for it. But yeah. I, I think it's like, let's say in general, Americans like to be comfortable and they make things easy. Right. And so artificial turf became that for grass where the Europeans made a decision that this game is going to be played on grass no matter what. And so they figured out how to get it consistent week to week, no matter what the weather was, no matter what season time of year. Right. And so it was just, it was all it was, was people that had, it was people forced to solve problems where our, we just took the easy way threw some carpet down, do a little bit of rubber in it over time. And, and now you've got what's supposed to be the same and, and nobody, nobody will tell you that it's the same, especially if they've played on an elite field. And so I, that's my opinion of why there's so much further ahead is we just took the easy out. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more on that part. Uh, it's just, again, I might get in trouble for talking about it, but I don't care. Uh, the the like level of not comprehending what it takes to manage even an artificial field, like mm-hmm. I don't as a like as a parent, like obviously kids are gonna have to play on artificials because it's everywhere, and uh, people are like, yep. oh, I don't have to take care of it, whatever. But the fact that again we have the carpet. A little bit of rubber, a little bit of sand, and right underneath that is a concrete pad. Like, what? What is the equivalent of a concrete pad? Like roadbed. Yeah. Who? Yep. Who is okay with that? <laughs> you know, like think about it's, your kid's head bouncing off concrete. Like, <laughs> is there no comprehension? Like to understand it? Like, ooh, look at that! It's plastic and green. I like it. Like, no, it's just I. Luckily, our our program has done well, and we were able to prevent our game field being switched to artificial. So we have it on a practice field, um, and it's great to see that again. Our advocation for natural grass actually panned out. Thank God, because I awesome. would not be around. But <laughs> it's um, a win. It's a win. Yes, we've got one. <laughs> no, <Nokesville>, Virginia. <laughs> hey, we're getting Iowa State's getting ready, so we're going to do the same recipe. We're going to grow our own side again. I say R just because I was there That's for a long awesome. time, but yeah. <laughs> they're, they're going to grow their sod again and they're going to replace the artificial soccer field with natural grass next summer. Awesome. That is awesome. Dude. Yeah. 
And, and a lot of it is because the coach the hated sport, it. You think that would like be like, yeah, we're not doing artificial, you know? That's, no. that's crazy. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to get in trouble. So I'm going to stop talking about artificial. Yeah, we'll stop. I mean, one more honest, artificial. artificial has its place. Like, again, 100%. I'm not like anti. It's 100%. Just, it's just, let's not call it the same. Let's just not do that. That's, and my thing. So I said, okay, so we have high schools. You should be able to maintain a field for your high school teams. Middle schools is a different story. You know, you don't have any athletic director that can manage fields all the time. They're younger. They're not going to be more forced with their body when it comes to like torque and all that, which is what we're seeing issues with. Um, But again, I come back to this because I've talked to multiple NFL field managers that maintain artificial fields. They replace it every two years. Two. Crazy. Crazy. We have people running it 15 years. Like, well, it said it was like go 10. Like, so why are you in year 15 and not have a new field? <laughs> that's that's my issue. Like, that's yeah, my I, new headline writer. Like, guys, two years. And they only have like 10 games in those two years. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but um, sort of going back, uh, and I meant to talk about it earlier. What what was that sort of like for you coming up with that idea of okay? Why don't we grow our field right next door? You know, how did that come to fruition? What was that sort of planning like? Uh, I don't think I've seen anyone actually do it at a college level where it's, again, the program can actually help maintain, get ready, make sure everything's good to go. Like, again, when we talk about Carolina Green, I don't know if you've ever been out there. Mm-hmm. It is I haven't been out there. Thing. I want to. Oh, it is. We went down, my kids and I actually went to the SFMA conference this year and uh, we stopped on the way down. The amount nice. of the amount of fields that they can cut in that space is unbelievable. And Chad does a fantastic job, but being able to do that on site right nearby mm-hmm. is pretty awesome because again, you guys can do and manage and see what's going on and be sort of that sod farmer. What was that like? And how did you get that up and running? So when the idea came about, it was, so my last name being Van Lu, it means I'm Dutch, right? Which means I'm going to squeeze every penny I can. And even though, the university, I mean, I never went without, it was, I was always conscious of just how much money we're spending. I tracked a lot of what we did, especially the first five or six years I was there. It was always consistent. So I kind of just stopped because it really wasn't worth my time anymore. But it was, it was the idea is like, well, I don't, if we don't have to spend a million dollars, I don't want to spend a million dollars. And a lot of that was just, it was probably almost pride um, where it was like, I know what a plastic field costs. And I want to make this cheaper than that. And so Jack Trice had been natural grass since 96. It was renovated in 2008. And all they did then was strip the sod, kind of regrade or touch the grade up and sod it again. And they had gotten that sod from Wisconsin. And so, you know, I had always joked with Andri- with Mike Andreessen. Um, okay. He got a field the last 12 years. I got to at least get 12. Right. And so I think it ended up being 13 or whatever it was when I left. Um, but the only reason we really needed to renovate it was because in those 25 years we top dressed it and we had raised the field up about eight inches. And so our full USGA system, instead of being 12 inches of sand was closer to 20. And so really started noticing some issues in 18. Um, There must be a tipping point around 18 inches of sand root zone because all of a sudden like the middle of the field was drying out different. And it was just, it was just acting like it hadn't previous seven or eight seasons I was there. And so I had kind of put on our administrator's radar, like, hey, at some point, we need to get this thing back to where it was before. 
and I don't think it needs a tonal renovation. The drainage still works. The irrigation still works. Like we just need to get some of the sand out of there, get back to the real grades. And, and so, um, when I had moved into overseeing all the facilities and, and basically I had a little bit more influence on, on some of that stuff, the, the administrator that was that oversaw facilities named Chris Jorgensen, fantastic director of athletics. And it, it, he's just so good at seeing things ahead of time. We started talking, he's like, why don't you start getting pricey? Why don't you start figuring this out? And so, um, son had had me out to talk in Colorado. So my wife and I took a motorcycle out ride out there. I actually visited a sod farm out there with um, Evan Fowler. And I was like, this is great. We did some pricing. And I was like, man, this is so dang expensive to just truck it. Like the sod was perfect. It would have been fine. But it was like to truck it from Colorado to Iowa. I know it's only a couple of states, but they're big, flat states, right? It's a long way. It's not like the little states in the east side of the, uh, of the country. So it, it's it was just a lot of money. And it was it, then we just got to think is like, well, why can't we just grow our own? Like then we've got the exact sand. We don't have to worry about any layering. And so it really just came down to making the project simpler, really. I mean, it just, that's just what it was. And so we could, we could then um, pick the cultivars we wanted. We could then pick, the, we could have the sand be exact. We could have the same climate. We could, we could have all of these things happen. All we got to do is grow stop. How hard can that be? Um, and so you know, as much of a risk as it was actually just talked to to Josh, um, the, the field manager now a couple of weeks ago, it was right after it got sodded. I was talking to him on the phone and he was, he was really excited that it worked. And I said, Josh, were you really worried that it wouldn't work? He's like, I was more worried that there wasn't a plan B. And I said, well, we had 10 months to grow bluegrass. Like, did we really need a plan B? And I said, Josh, honestly, this was the plan B because plan A for me would have been to seed it in place, but that would have been a little bit more risky. So we did use plan B. It was fine. Um, but you know, it was, we had the right field construction crew right here in Des Moines. Um, Iowa sports surf guys are great. Casey Scheidel runs a unbelievably successful, um, uh, field building, um, company. Um, that's not owned by Musco. Actually, they got bought last year. I don't know how much that's, whatever. doesn't matter. Um, so they're there. I had, I had Dr. Tomes and his staff um, growing it in like, right. These, I mean, these guys are, they have PhDs in growing grass. We'll be able to figure this out. Right. Um, we Rest had PhD, right. <laughs> right. I mean, we, and we had, you know, you have Josh and his crew that were there willing to work. You had, you had other professionals that had gone through this. And, and like I said, it just, none of it made it made me that nervous because we had done it a little, it was a little bit different in Michigan state because we had the module system. But we still grew it the summer before, moved it into the stadium the next year. And so it was like I had seen this firsthand as a student. And I just like this is it. it. One, when you don't have a you don't have the ability to not fail, like you just you just make it work. Right. And so we had the we had the right pieces in place to do it here. We had the know how really the biggest piece of the puzzle was finding somebody to harvest the sod, which I didn't think would be as big a deal as it was. Um, but finally Casey, uh, at the, I, I was sports sure he was able to talk where they get a lot of their sod from and do it like, Hey, bring your machine up, <laughs> do these big rolls for us. And so it ended up working out really good, but that was a weird, I, that was the piece of the puzzle I didn't think would be a problem, but it ended up being like, wait a minute, we can do all this, but if we can't get somebody to cut it, we got a real problem. And so luckily we were able to solve that and 
yeah, you know, all the pieces fell together and it was really fun project. I just love how it's just going to be a thing that can be readily available from now on, you know, being able to do the soccer field next and all that. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of schools, organizations, sports, anything really can say, I've got a field two miles away. Nobody, no worries. You know, like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> always ready to go. Nothing. Crazy. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, that's just an awesome overall idea. So you mentioned before, obviously you served on the board of the SFMA STMA at the time. Sorry. I'm still, yeah. no, you're good. <laughs> um, what was it like for you again, sort of making that time to volunteer? Obviously it takes a few sort of cycles before you become the president. Um, what was it like for you working on the board, being a part of the organization in that sort of way? And how was it? Uh, in your sort of career, being able to serve as the SFMA president um, for all of the different sports field managers at all levels all around the country, even the world. Yeah, and I've said it before. For one, it was the most humbling experience I've ever had. Um, when I got voted on to, to, well, actually, when I was just asked to like throw my name in the hat, um, it was when I was like, yeah, sure. Like, one, I'm not going to win the election, so. I'm like, you know, what was there to lose here? Right. Um, but then once I got on it that first year, I was intimidated. I mean, you got guys like Troy Smith and Dr. Goatley and Dave Pinsano and, and all these guys that would be staples for so long in the industry that I had looked up to that. Um, and so it was just this weird, like, am I really part of this group? Like, this doesn't feel like I belong here. Um, but once you get into it, I mean, honestly, it's just like anything. Once you, once you understand who these people are, they're just, there's no big deal. Right. And so it was fun to see them. Um, really, it was just at the end of the day, it was a group of people serving on a board for a common purpose Though we all didn't get, I mean, we all didn't agree with each other. Um, but Kim Heck did such a nice job of creating this professional, like it was, you know, a unified voice when we left and, and all of these things that were just standard operating procedure within that boardroom. I've, I've told her this um, recently. I was like, you've ruined me for serving on other boards because they just didn't flow and they didn't work as well as that one. So that was a, that was a great experience was just understanding how a, a healthy board of directors works one. So for anybody that know, wants to know, SFMA board of directors is super healthy. It's really, it was really productive and very fun to be part of. And then to be, to be asked to, to, to potentially go on into the executive board and then be voted into that, um, was just really humbling. Honestly, it was, um, it was really surreal. I didn't never felt deserving or anything like that. It was just really, it was just really fun. Um, and, and again, I mean, that group of people that go to that, you know, a lot of the ones that just are always there every year are just, they just have a passion and you, when you're around people that, that are passionate about things that are similar to your passion, it's just really fun. Right. And so, you know, though we, though we may not all agree, whether it be politically or, you know, whatever, but like we're in that realm, like we're unified and we're, we're there for one thing and it's to, to be better at what we do and to serve our athletes and coaches and communities. And, and so that's just really fun to be part of that. And so to, to have the opportunity to, you know, quote unquote, lead that group, I, an experience I really can't ever put a word to, um, it was just super humbling. It was super humbling. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I was on that board for six years um, and just a life experience that I'll forever treasure. It was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Especially, I mean, like you said, the, I love the reason I love the SFMA again, it gave me the opportunity to 
pursue my passion and be a part of what is so much bigger than just, again, one field that you manage or however many you have at your facility. Just seeing the people that go through the same struggles, who go through the same successes, being able to talk to them, being able to bounce ideas off of um, and really just, again, sit down and talk, you know, that's, that's honestly like, that's one of my favorite things about going to the conferences, being able to do those things and seeing those people we haven't seen in a while, you know, former bosses, mm-hmm. different things like that. Um, and again, I greatly appreciate the work you did with it because what year was it that it was 2017, 2018? Yep. Yep. Somewhere in there. San Diego, San Diego, something whatever the, wherever the conference was, it's always great to have the opportunity to learn more in the setting of others, you know, like you said, that are in the same passion, the same idea. Like, yes, we can do all these different educational things. And obviously there's great opportunities out there, but being able to do some educational work through people that are right there with you through the thick and thin of what turf grass and the world of turf grass has for all of us. Yeah. There's really nothing like that. And I really, couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, now and it's interesting. Sorry, go ahead. I'll add. I'll just add quickly. Yeah. Um, this it, you touched on it. Like, there's no replacement for having meet, having met people, or get to know people that have a passion, and, and being able to pick up the phone after that conference and talk to them, and learn from them, and ask questions. Where I, um, social media, I think that's where it falls short. And, and I hope that association stuff doesn't take a backseat to the educational opportunities that social media can provide, because I think that's a great platform as well. But there is something with that personal contact and getting to know somebody in person and in a way that is um, just real and, and authentic. And there's, there's something about it knowing that you're not alone ever in your chase for perfect field if that's what it is or whatever it is you know safety playability all those kind of things there's other people that are just as passionate trying to do it and would be willing to drop anything to help you pursue that and and that's only something that those kind of associations can provide 100 percent, absolutely um and i i think social media is a good thing when it comes to sort of bridging sort of our time frame you know mm-hmm. um and there are some good t- like today uh I think it was Leah Withrow. She posted something about, um, I can't remember the specific grounds crew, but uh, Memphis uh, minor league team, they were putting the tarp on the field without uh, any rain and the players wouldn't get off the field. And it was like, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? But as they were crossing over the mound with the tarp, the heavens opened up and everything and whatnot. Like it was terrible. Like the wind was awful and everything and whatnot. And she's like, trust your groundskeepers people. Like this is what it's all about. Um, so things like that, that can then become something more at those, at, whether it's a presentation, whether that's meeting up and mm-hmm. talking about it, like that's what I think the social media role should be, you know? Um, yep. And Honestly, the only reason that we're on social media is to sort of share what our kids do, you know, highlight their work. So uh, that's sort of what we use it for. And again, sometimes that season says like, oh my gosh, you're putting up 10 million mowing patterns. Well, the kids really enjoy it. You know, we, (laughs) we got to get them interested in doing this, you know? (laughs) So you're exact. I I can remember the only reason I had Twitter 
was it actually came from a board meeting. I'll never forget it was in Chicago. It was when we were we were talking about bringing in um, uh, the um, marketing. And it was like, what, what are we really bad at as an industry? It's like, it's marketing ourselves, right? And because we're behind the scenes people, we, we've heard it said a thousand times. And it's like, I went home, fired up the Twitter, called it Cyclone Turf and just highlighted stuff at work. Um, I never did put anything personal on it. Maybe I'll throw a dog, you know, like my dog on the sprayer or something like that it was about as personal as I got. Oh, it's always worth that. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, that's all I use it for. And then when I left, I left that to those guys and I actually haven't been on social media since, but I, I gave that account to Josh and, and Michael and they've continued it from what I understand. And, um, but yeah, it's just, it was fun to do it that way. Um, but just to highlight what we do. And it was so nice to have people just almost re, re reply or, or, you know, whatever DM or whatever. It's like, I had no idea that it had took this much work. And so that's what was fun about it, it was you just educated fans Yeah, and being at Iowa state, we had a lot of them and, I don't know why. I mean, it's not like cyclone football has been that great ever. Um, been pretty good the last couple of years, but man, before that, yeah. I'm like, why are you guys here? Like, this is, <laughs> what are we doing? This is your, they are loyal. Managing it. I'm managing it because I want to, not because you're very good at this, but we're going to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, oh man, whatever. No, for sure. And I think, I think what you said there about sort of making people wear, you know, that's sort of, that's not like, again, obviously bringing in more people into the industry, like what our program is for, but also, I, so I have 200 students roundabout, like if, even if there's only five kids going into it on an annual basis, I still have 195 kids who know who the groundskeepers are, who are going yeah. to look at the field differently than what they would if they were just going to a game like and whatnot. So, right. Um, I couldn't agree with you more on that sort of been the weakness in our industry. And obviously we're getting better, but I feel like there needs to be some way we can sort of advocate, whether that's through an athlete themselves sort of advocating for us, or is that's putting a banner up in a stadium that's like dead center. Like, Hey, look at that. It's on the screen all the time. We should probably put something like, what's that? You know, but Different things like that. So, and I know that sounds funny and weird, but I think that would do wonders for, again, sort of our organization. Um, so I can't agree with you more on that. Um, so we ra uh, wrap up on these last two questions. Sorry, I can't talk for some reason. <laughs> but uh, just, I'm always interested to hear the different responses because they can go any which way. Um, obviously, you've had an incredible career and being able to see uh, your work through over the years. If there was one thing that you wish you knew, uh, and it doesn't have to make anything improve on what you did or anything, uh, or change the way your journey. If there was one thing you wish you could do, what would that one thing be and why? In, in regards to like when you start stuff. Yeah. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> it turns more personal in the sense of in the industry, sort of like, uh, maybe something like wish you knew more time for like family things like managing stuff and again not not focusing on I'm just saying like it doesn't have to just be like I wish I knew that I could do better bluegrass in uh, Ames versus I, I guess it was it was if, if I had a shortcoming um, I wish I knew that I could trust those around me um, 
to, to get the job done um, more often. Um, it took me a while to, to not feel like I needed to do everything or be there for everything. And, and honestly, it was like my last year when I stepped away from the fields day to day and saw Josh just do what he did, Michael do what he did and, and be able to, to do it differently than what I thought had to be done sometimes, but they still got it done. Um, that was probably, I wish I knew that I could have gotten away a little bit more. Um, I, I think we all struggle. We all think that we have to be there all the time. And so to, to take more time, to take more weekends, to, to let them lead on a weekend to where I can take the next weekend, that kind of stuff. I wish, I wish more of us could see that side of it because at the end of the day, like, I don't know if we think we're that important, but it's just like, we, we get tunnel visioned on having to be there all the time. And I, I, I wish I knew that I didn't have to be and and it wouldn't have reflected poorly on me um, because I, I just, it's not that I didn't trust the guys. It's not, I mean, it wasn't that at all. It was just, you always felt like you had to be there. Um, and so later in my years there, I, I became more comfortable with not being there for everything, but man, those first couple of years just never, never felt like I couldn't not be there. Um, so that's what I wish. Cause I, the thing I don't, I didn't, I didn't leave Iowa state because I was burned out. Um, that wasn't it at all. It was actually a really hard decision to make. It was what I, what I find really sad is the ones that leave our industry and don't, don't ever come back. And when we lose a really good one, um, because it's, you know, as we know, finding employees is hard enough and finding people that are passionate and professional and all that stuff is even harder. And, and when we lose one, because they just get burned out, I mean, it's such a sad thing um, because it's, it's probably some of it is the demands of the job, but some of it is just our own, just, we bring this stress upon ourselves where nobody else even expects it. Um, and I wish I knew that. I wish I didn't know. I wish I would have seen that earlier. Absolutely. And it- and it's not anyone's fault. It's just sort of in the DNA of what a sports field manager yep. is. You know, it's not, and again, it's not trusting, like you said, it's not trusting the other person. It's just like, you've always been there. You know, it's always been like, all right, let's get this done. You got to get this done, get this done. It's just sort of who we are as an industry as a whole, you know? Um, so, yep. yeah. And I, it's incredible because it's hard, it's hard to take those moments and understand that, you know? Um and learning from what your experience taught you and everything. So it's incredible to hear. Um, and then the last question we always ask is obviously we have some young individuals, pardon me, that came out of nowhere, um, <laughs> young individuals who are looking to join the industry. Uh, actually, like I said, graduating in about 10 days, you know, um, what would be your best words of advice for them when it comes to sort of taking that next step in their lives and, looking forward to the future? Oh, man. I'm going to take this in two ways. We'll go personally and professionally. Um, Personally, be accountable for everything you do. Um, You know, that we can, I I find it easy. I think the the older I get, the, the less I can blame anybody else for things that don't go right. Right. Um, I, I, I can see that like I had an influence on that. Um, so I would encourage young folks to, to own, own their mistakes, like own their responsibility and things and just have accountability and all of that. And just, just using the words like, Hey, I messed up. Um, you know, I, 
I made a mistake. All of those things are just milestone statements that show humility and show the ability to learn. And so that would be my, my first piece of advice to people is just be accountable for all of your actions, not some of them, all of them, right? Own all your mistakes. Mistakes don't define you. Those are learning opportunities, right? Um, and then professionally, latch on to those that are really good at what they do. Um, and, and, not, and even those people that are really good at what they do will have shortcomings. So you can learn from those just as well as you can the good things. Um, I mean, I, you know, I had all kinds of bosses throughout it, um, and, and all of them had strengths and weaknesses. And, and being able to take pieces of all of that to create your own style, to, to be successful, um, managing people is super important. And so learn from those people, whether, whether you think they're a giant jerk or whether you think they're the nicest person on earth, you can learn from both of those people and take lessons from all of those experiences. And so don't necessarily run from, all, from, from a hard situation, but you can learn from that. And so professionally, that's what I would say, because the grass stuff at the end of the day, what's the worst thing going to happen? You can kill it right? That's what they make seeds, sprigs, and sod for. Um, and so we can, we can, we can make that better again. Um, we used to have a joke at, at, at the stadium was like, seed didn't do you any good in the back, right? And so having this fear of killing grasses, that's just, that shouldn't be a thing. You can always grow it, but it's the managing of people impacting or having relationships and impacting those around you. I mean, that's, that's really fun stuff. So and that's where, that's where you find the fulfillment, I think. Some of the best words of advice we've had on this podcast. So I, I really can't thank you enough for all the time you've taken. Uh, we really, really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, and again, it's been awesome talking to you. Man, I was so excited to do this. I was like, man, this is going to be so fun. So I, I thank you for having me. This is, this is great. This is great. Of course.